the month of January is named after a two-faced god named Janus. You may have seen a picture of Janus. It's a, 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 like a face on a coin, and there's one face that faces this way forward, one face that faces backwards, and it serves as a, uh, as a god of doorways or gates, and so typically you would see a, a Janus figurine at a doorway or a gate because it's looking both ways. One, one's looking forward through the gate, one's looking backwards, and in the month of January, that's what we do. We, we are looking forward here on January the 1st to the 2012 year and what, what it all means, and, and we're also taking time to turn around and look backwards and try to evaluate, well, what happened in 2011? What, what promises were made? What promises were kept? And then we look forward to new promises and a new beginning today. And so this morning, I want us to do some self-evaluation and perhaps some reorientation for each of us this morning as we examine the life of Jeroboam, who is the first king in the divided kingdom. As you know, the kingdom of Israel was a whole. It got divided into two. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And Jeroboam was the very first king of the northern kingdom. And so I want to take a few minutes just to get some orientation about his life and his legacy. Uh, King Solomon was his father, and uh, or it was the, the king before Jeroboam, and Solomon was the son of David. So you have three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. They are kings over the United Kingdom. And then when you look through the rest of First and Second Kings, it's this: the king of Israel, the king of Judah, the king of Israel, the king of Judah. And uh, when you read in First Kings 11, uh, verse 7, which will be helpful for you to look at, you'll see how Solomon's reign started out with such great uh, power and such great promise really ends terribly. 1 Kings eleven seven. Then Solomon built a high place or a place of worship for Chemosh, which is a god, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, which is another god, the abomination of the Ammonites. On the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all of his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant, who happens to be Jeroboam. And Jeroboam is the person who works for Solomon on one of his uh, many building projects. And uh, he runs into Jeroboam at some point and notices that he is a good worker, very ambitious, and puts him over a large uh, section of his kingdom. And one day, this man named Jeroboam, this ambi- ambitious worker, is walking out of Jerusalem, and he encounters, Jeroboam encounters a prophet. And this prophet, his name is Ahijah. And Ahijah was wearing this cloak, and he took this cloak off, and he tore it into 12 pieces. And he gave to Jeroboam these 12 pieces and said, you pick out 10 pieces. 
and that will be your kingdom because the 12 tribes of Israel were divided into two, 10 tribes to the north and two tribes to the south. And so Jeroboam is going to be given the 10 tribes to the north. Let's look at 1 Kings 11.37. And I will take you and you shall reign over all that you desire. All your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel. So this is what God, God is saying to Jeroboam through the prophet. I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will, if you will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commands as my servant David did, I will be with you. I will build for you a sure house as I built for David. I will give you, I will give Israel to you. So you have all these tremendous promises. Imagine being Jeroboam. He's on this project, this building project. He's walking out of town. He meets this prophet and this prophet comes up to him and hands out these 10 pieces of a, of a cloak. And then he says, this is what the Lord God says to you, Jeroboam. You, you're, you're going to rule over all that your heart desires. You're going to be the king of Israel. If you walk in God's ways, he's always going to be with you. I'm going to build for you a dynasty that's just like King David's. He must have been absolutely blown away by these promises that God had given him. And so now Jeroboam stands here with these promises far more than he could possibly imagine. And if we look in chapter 14, a few pages over, we'll see... Well, we get towards the end of Jeroboam's life. Jeroboam had risen to be king, and yet he drifted away from God. And when you get to 1 Kings 14, you see that Jeroboam is in a crisis. He has a son who's sick, and he wants to know what's going to happen to his son because that's his heir. And he decides, well, maybe I should go back to this old prophet who had given me all these promises. Maybe Ahijah would know what would happen. But Jeroboam can't go back himself because he's drifted so far away from the promises that God's given him. He says to his wife, wife, you dress up in disguise and you go find out what will happen. And then you come back and report to me. So Jeroboam sends his wife in First Kings 14. Verse six. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, this is Jeroboam's wife, as she came in at the door, he said, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and I made you leader over my people Israel. And I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and I gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all of his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam, and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free, in Israel. And I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. 
verse 12. Therefore, Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, your child shall die. Verse 16. And he will give Israel up. God will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. What a contrast. A few years earlier, this ambitious leader on this building project comes out and just out of nowhere, the prophet says, you've been chosen. And I'm going to give you a, a kingdom, a dynasty that lasts just like David's. You're going to be the king. If you just follow after me, if you trust in my promises, and now at the end of his life, the son is going to die. Disaster is going to come upon his house, and even the entire nation of Israel is going to be scattered. Imagine the long walk home for Jeroboam's wife, knowing that as soon as she set foot back in the city, her own son was going to die. You see, the choices that you make in your life have consequences. And here we see Jeroboam's legacy. Keep your hand there in 1 Kings and turn over with me to 2 Kings 17. This is now 200 years later. This is the end of, of the northern kingdom, Israel. 2 Kings 17, verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, this is a, a king, uh, the last king of Israel. So Jeroboam's the first, Hosea's the last. The king of Assyria captured Samaria, that's the capital. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Haliah and on the harbor and the river of Gozan and in the city of Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And then if you go down to um, verse 15. They despised God's statutes. This is Israel. Israel despised God's statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false themselves. See, if you if you go after something false, the best you can become is false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not be like them. Verse 21. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them. Until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all of his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria this day. So 200 years later, what a legacy. So it, it gives you a, a picture of what we're trying to talk about this morning. Here we have this man who's just been chosen for no particular reason. God dumps on all of these promises. Jeremoah, Jeroboam begins to drift away. 
And not, not only is he drifting away, not only is he bringing his whole family down with him, his drifting is causing an entire nation to fall 200 years later. And when they write about it 200 years later, they say, here's what we want to go back to. Here was the starting point. Here was the person who began to drag us in the opposite direction. It was Jeroboam. Now, there were a number of kings in between, but we're going back to the beginning, the person who began this legacy for us. And so we have a question here before us is, what happened? Which is our text this morning, 1 Kings 12, 26. Jeroboam had become the king. He had, uh, he had been given these promises. He was taking control of the northern territory. But you notice here in 12, verse 26, Jeroboam, Jeroboam becomes uh, afraid. He becomes paranoid. Jeroboam said in his heart, or in another translation, it says he thought to himself. And this is what he's thinking internally. Now, the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom. And if the people go from the northern kingdom back down to the southern kingdom, Jeroboam is afraid they'll become wanting to get back to the southern kingdom. Then the heart of this people will return again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, who is the king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Jeroboam, the king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. I mean, you must be tired going down to Jerusalem three times a year for these festivals. You don't need to do that. We'll set up our own idols up here. Behold your gods. These are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Jeroboam set one of these in Bethel. That's in the southern part of Israel. And one in Dan. Just in case you lived either place, it's most convenient for you to go wherever you'd like. This thing became a sin, verse 30, for the people. Jeroboam also made temples in high places. He appointed priests from among the people who were not of the Levites. He made a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month. He offered sacrifices. Verse 33. He did all this because they were devised from his own heart. So here is the here are the lessons from Jeroboam for us this morning. Jeroboam lost his faith in God and substituted his own wisdom. And we'll talk about that. Jeroboam had faith in God, but it got substituted. And the substitute of faith in God was What's in my own heart? What do I think to myself? What's going on in my own brain? That must be the right way to go. Secondly, Jeremiah did not live faithfully, but he lived fearfully. In Jeroboam's mind, the people got big and God got small. And so when that happened, he didn't live faithfully. He lived fearfully. And finally, Jeroboam made a fundamental shift in worship. 
So let's look at these one at a time, and we'll make some application, and you think about how God may be speaking to you this morning. First of all, verse 26, Jeroboam lost his faith in God and substituted his own wisdom. See, when we get to Jeroboam, it's not it's not a um, a picture of adultery. It's not a picture of embezzlement. It's not a drug addiction that he gets uh, caught into. But it's this massive flashing light to tell everybody, hey, the big one of your big potential temptations, one of the potential problems that you're going to have in, in following after the Lord is just drifting. It's just drifting away from God. And just instead of drifting into what God has to say, you just you drift into your own mind. And what do I think? And that's what's happening to Jeroboam. He began trusting in his own thoughts rather than the promises of God. It didn't just happen on a January 1st, but just over time, Jeroboam, who had his focus on God, he just began to drift. And as he began to drift, he just began to think to himself and say, well, what do I think? What does my own heart tell me? That that must be the direction that I should go. And Jeroboam just locked himself in a room filled with his own thoughts. In verse 26, he said in his own heart. See, see, instead of making his decisions based on the word of God, he made his decisions based on what was in his own heart. Let me say that one more time, because that may be the the one thing that you need to hear this morning. Instead of making his decisions based on the word of God, he locked himself in his own room of his own thoughts. And he thought to himself, this must be the right way. See, Jeroboam traded in an eternal perspective for a limited self-centered perspective. He he just looked around and what he thought intellectually, what he thought emotionally, what he thought physically, that must be the truth. If it works in those categories, then it must be the truth. Instead of looking at the God category, he's looking at himself. And isn't that what we find in Genesis chapter 3? Eve comes up, she has the promises. And what happens? The Eve looks at the fruit and she sees that the tree was good for food. It, it was good for a physical reaction. It was a delightful to, to my eyes. It was good for an emotional reaction. It would make me wise. It was good for an intellectual reaction. So she's looking at all the categories and she's saying, this is good for me physically. This is good for me emotionally. This is good for me intellectually. If it's every category except for one category, what's that? The God category. And she has a decision to make. She's she's standing there with these two faces looking down these different roads. Which way am I going to go? Am I going to follow my heart? Which is in every song on top 40 radio. Or am I going to follow after the promises of God? And Jeroboam begins to make that drift. To say, well, what's in my own heart? What what feels right emotionally, intellectually, physically must be the right way to go. Now, throughout the Bible, we're encouraged to think, but to think from a biblical perspective. Uh, Romans 12, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world. You've been going down this road. It's time to turn around. 
And you're going to be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. You, you, you've been thinking in a particular direction. And you must turn that around. And the way to turn that around is you must be embedded in the Word of God. The Word of God must be embedded in your mind. So you no longer are relying on, well, this is how I feel, so that must be right. This is how I think, so this must be right. This makes me feel physically good, so this must be right. No, that's, that's probably not right. And how would you know? Because because the word of God now takes over your mind. Deuteronomy 11, Moses' uh, comments to the people. Be careful. Or, or when you enter this land, you'll be enticed to turn away, to worship other gods and bow down. Why didn't Jeroboam read this, I want to just say? Jeroboam, it's right here. It's for you to read. When you get into another land, when you come into a new year, there's going to be all kinds of temptations to walk away. I'm warning you, it is going to happen. But, but to fight against this, Moses says, fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your house. So, so no matter which way you're going, you're always going God's way. And how many, how many times our problems are created because we don't apply God's wisdom to our circumstances. Instead, we, we listen to our own heart. I mean, so, so many people, they don't have to come to a pastor's office. They can come to your house. What, what got you into this problem? Well, I was thinking, oh, big problem. That didn't turn out too good, did it? No, it didn't turn out too good. It sort of felt like I should. Oh, that's a big problem. Didn't turn out too good. No, it didn't turn out too good. So I, I need a new word. That's why they come to you. That's why they. I, I, I've been following this word. It's going down. I need a new word. I need something else in my brain. I need a new direction. Can you help me? And so we need to. Look at ourselves this morning. You need to look at yourself this morning. Here you are standing or sitting January the 1st. It's a, it's a new year. Let's do some evaluation. Have you been drifting? I mean, are you making your decisions about who you date? What your major should be? How you should spend your money, how you should spend your time, how you raise your kids, how you watch television, what you buy, what you don't buy. Are those decisions made just on this is what I feel like? This is what I think? Or are they made out of the Bible? Or are you are you somebody who, like Jeroboam, you have all these promises, but really you just drifted away to to yourself? And this is a time to. To come back to the Lord. It's important because you're, I want you to remember, you're leaving a legacy. Your, your choices today are not just going to have impact tomorrow. They will have impact in 200 years. Secondly, Jeroboam traded in living faithfully for living fearfully. In, in Jeroboam's mind, 
All the people were big and God was small. Notice just how Jeroboam's insecurities in verse 27 spill out. He just gets paranoid. Look, I know what's going to happen. I mean, even though I'm in the bigger country and I'm in the better territory and I'm the more powerful of the two, these people are going to go down to Jerusalem. And because he's in his own mind, they're going to like Jeroboam, doggone it. And the temple's down there and the sacrifices are down there. And they're going to come back. And what are they going to do? They're going to put me to death. You see what happens when you're in your in your own mind? You stretch things way out of proportion. You stretch things out of proportion against other people. Or against yourself or against the situation because you're in your own mind and it's always bigger than it should be. And so Jeroboam is fearful and he's worried that God might not come through on his promises. So he decides he's going to take matters in his own hands. He's now driven to do whatever would make the people happy. And it happens so easily for everyone here. People become the controlling factor instead of God. It happened to Jeroboam. It happened to Saul, the first king. Saul was given an assignment. And part of the assignment was to wait on the Lord. And he didn't wait, and this was his reaction. I know I've sinned. I know I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. You hear that? I know I've done wrong, but I was afraid of the people. See, I know what God wants me to do. I know I violated what he wanted me to do. But what was bigger were the people. The people were bigger than God, so I had to go with the people because... The people were more important, so I gave in to them. John chapter 12, which we'll get to in a few weeks. Many of the people of the Pharisees among the leadership were believing in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. See, the praise of men is bigger than God's praise. And because their praise is bigger, because they're bigger in my mind, then I'm following after them. Peter, the great apostle. He's he's following after Christ. He's committed to following Jesus to his death. He's he's made that public proclamation to Jesus and all of his closest friends. Hey, it doesn't matter, Jesus, if everybody else leaves, I'm going to be there to the end if it means my end. And he gets by a little campfire and he gets by this 12 year old girl who has absolutely no standing. And she just says, hey, weren't you with Jesus? And what happens? The little girl's bigger than God. In Peter's mind. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I never had anything to do with that man. And because right then, Peter's fear of man was so much bigger than his fear of God. God was so small and people were so big that that even the strongest apostle was driven to do something that seems absolutely ridiculous. 
Well, if it's happened to the first king of Israel, if it's happened to the first king Jeroboam, if it's happening to people who are believing in Jesus, who are seeing Jesus, if it happens to the apostle, it can happen to you. I'm I'm just wondering if there's one small voice in your own mind this morning that has captured your attention. You know what I'm talking about. There's there's a voice. It's a boyfriend. It's a girlfriend. It's a parent. It's a boss. It's a professor. It's a neighbor. It's some voice in your head that's so big. It's like a a snake that's slithered up the tree and said, oh, come on. You can't really believe in the promises of God. And that voice is in your head. And it might even be in your head from somebody who's dead. But it is so big. That you live your life by that one voice. You you try to please that one voice. And it's because that one voice is so big and God is is so small. First Kings tells us what happens. You 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 imitate the people around you. You follow after worthless idols and you become worthless yourself. In his book, uh, Ed Welch writes this. This book is called When People Are Big and God is Small. He says this, the fear of man wields awesome power. The praise of others, that that wisp of a breeze that lasts for a moment can seem more glorious than the praise of God. Teenagers are constantly making unwise decisions because of it. Adults, too, look to people for their cues. We spend way too much time wondering what others might have thought about our outfit or our comment during a conversation. People become idols because we perceive they have power to give us something. What is the result of this idolatry? Now, listen to this. The idol we choose to worship soon owns us. People become huge and they rule us. They tell us how to think, what to feel, how to act, what to wear, and that we must laugh at the dirty joke. Yet the whole strategy backfires. We never expect that using people to meet our desires leaves us enslaved to them. So so I'm I'm just wondering in in a point of application here. You're going to be enslaved to someone. You're going to be a servant of someone. There's not an option to be a non-servant. And you can serve the one who sets you free. Or you can be enslaved to a voice. A culture. A professor. A boyfriend. A parent. And they can become huge. And then you become enslaved to their desires. And when their desires change, you must change. And so are you are you living faithfully? Or are you really driven by fear? Finally, Jeremiah made a fundamental shift in worship. His first shift was in his way of thinking. His second shift was from faithfulness to fearfulness. His third shift is is worship. Worship becomes man-centered instead of God-centered. 
You see this in verse 28 and then following. You know, you've gone to Jerusalem long enough. In another version, it's too much for you. I mean, it's a difficult journey down to Jerusalem. I mean, so what I've done is I've set up two convenience shops, two 7-Eleven temples, you know, one north, one south. You pick the one that's nearest to you. And, and I put some shiny experiences in there for you. And I want you to just notice as you read through the rest of these verses from verse 28 on all the way to the end, it's just Jeroboam making up his own religion. I'm putting other temples in other places. I'm assigning my own priests. They don't have to have any sort of qualifications. They don't have to be Levites. I just pick people that I know. I'm going to choose not the seventh month. That's the month God chose. I'm just going to choose the eighth month. I like the eighth month. So let's do something on the eighth month. In verse 33, in the month that he had devised from his own heart, Jeroboam is just making up how he decides he would like to worship God. I want you to see this huge shift. It's important for us today. He's building a whole nation who says, I still want God, but I want him in a way that's going to be convenient for me. See, if you came in and the nation said, we don't want God, you'd be like, oh, I don't want you. But if you come in instead and they say, oh, we want God, but I just want God on my own terms. I would like to worship the way I like to worship. And instead of Jesus being at the center of worship, guess who gets to the center? You do. Worship begins to become the easiest, most convenient thing for the consumer. The consumer is the king. And if you are the king and you walk into a worship service, it's very hard to bow down to another king. I mean, can you imagine living in Jeroboam's time? (laughs) Yeah, you can. Can you imagine where the whole worship service is just centered around what I like? And if I don't like it here, then I just choose another shop around the corner because I like it better there. Because really, I'm the king. And everything's got to just funnel in my way. And if enough of it doesn't funnel my way, then I just go to another shop. See, the challenges for today are no different than in Jeroboam's time. And I wonder just for you, if you slipped into this thinking. I mean, have you? Are you really the king here? See, see we look at Jeroboam, we have to ask ourselves, well, in what ways might I be like him? Have I begun to drift? I I do know God. I know his promises. But really, I've just drifted in the year 2011 to whatever I think, whatever comes out of my brain must be best. Or maybe you've drifted from being a faithful servant to now you're fearful and there's a voice in your head that's gotten so big and God has gotten so small. Or maybe really you're just the king 
And you're not only the king outside of the church, you come in and you bring your crown with you. And everything has to work best for you, the customer, you're the king. And then it becomes hard to bow down to the king in that worship service. It's important today. But your legacy lasts for 200 years and longer. What you decide January 1st for 2012 is not going to go just through 2012. It's going to go through 2212 when you're not around. And whether they can go back to your name and your family or not, they will be able to trace it back and say it started when this man or this woman or this family decided to go in a different way. And if you go in a good way, you can leave a, such a positive trail. But if you're like Jeroboam and you, or like Solomon, and you follow after your own heart, 200 years later, your whole family, your whole family tree could be changed because of the decisions you make today. When we think about this year, especially in terms of leadership and it being an election year, The spiritual leadership our community needs, the spiritual leadership our country needs, never, ever will come from a political office. I don't want you to ever be fooled that if you just got the right guy in the right seat, then it all would go well. That's not where spiritual leadership is driven from. Spiritual leadership is driven from this place, from churches from the people of God. That's where spiritual leadership is designed to emanate from. And so one commentator said, when nations perish in their sins, it is in the church that the leprosy begins. And so we have to ask ourselves as a church, 200 years from now, what will Wilmington look like? A lot of it's going to be based on what you do this year. Whether you believe that or not, it's true. So it matters. It, it matters not just for today. It matters for 200 years when none of us are sitting in this building. January 1st is a, is a doorway. You look back, you evaluate, you look forward. You ask yourself, am I living faithfully? Am I living fearfully? Am I, am I drifting away? Am I, am I coming here to really bow down to the king or to get my crown shined? God knows that we're like sheep. We're easily led astray. And so he, he gives us this tangible reminder. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. It's not only what I've done for you, but what I'm asking you to do for other people. To lay your life down. And when you lay your life down, that's where real power begins. That's where real transformation begins to happen. And so in the Bible, it, it says when you gather together, you have this communion. You remember that it's not just you 
It's all of us. We're all as a community. We're we're trying to live up to something. We're trying to help each other. We're trying to encourage each other. Just not you doing it. It's all of us doing it. You can't do it by yourself. You can't go back and say, I'm making these resolves all by myself. You're not going to make it. You got to make them in a community. People who are helping you get there. And if you've drifted away, now's the time to come back and say, God, this is the day I'm, I'm saying today, 2012, I'm, I'm, I'm going to move in a different direction, not only for today, but for 200 years. The consequences for 200 years. There's a pretty strong admonition against coming to the table if you're not a Christian. Don't come in disguise like Jeroboam's wife. I don't know. I'm easily fooled. But it really doesn't matter what I think. If you're in disguise, it's a time to sit and ask, when am I ready to take the disguise off? And really be real. And who do I want to worship? On the night Jesus was betrayed, he sat at a table Recalling the Passover, that when a perfect lamb was sacrificed, death passed over. And not only saved the the oldest, it saved a whole nation. And he said, so I'm laying my life down. Come, you, you take, you eat, you be reminded that I laid my life down for you. And you, in this year, you lay your life down for other people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.